I don't know how I started in higher education, but I do know it was a learning curve, making U-turns, wrong turns, going around in circles and hitting stop signs until I started asking questions, asking faculty, scholars, even myself looking for answers. So now they call me the... The Navigationalist. Yes, let's get to it. Thank you. Welcome to The Navigationalist, where we will have crucial conversations about navigational strategies. I am Jimmy Cheffin, the host of The Navigationalist, and today we will explore how to handle an example of a microaggression. And then we will discuss how important it is for you to bring your true authentic self to a college employee party. And we will tell you time and time again, that promotion that you're looking for has always been in your hands. Today, our guest will be author and scholar of workplace bullying, Dr. Leah Hollis, and we will have senior EEO coordinator at the University of Iowa, Wanda Martin. This is awesome. And of course, I have a bonus. Co-hosting with me today, I have my friend, my colleague, educator, author, podcaster, success coach, Dr. Jacqueline Penny. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me here today. Great. Awesome. Now, before I start, I'd like to remind our podcast listeners, if you have a question for our navigational guests, please visit our website, greenbookforhighred.com. And my colleague, Dr. Carolina Bailey, will read the questions from the cafe. So my chair said some derogatory remarks against women and ended with, (laughs) you know, women. Other faculty, including minority faculty and some female faculty, laughed. I know it does not seem much, but it has been on my mind. So what should I do? A, send this person an email confronting his ugly words. B, blast him on Facebook under another profile. C, just ignore him and stop talking to him. D, none of the above. The reason we picked this one, this is a real narrative, right? It's very common. You know, um, as I walk on campus, many underrepresented faculty ask me, what should they do if they experience a microaggression or an aggression or simply an assault or whatever? I have er- have heard every response from collecting tens to tens of documented numbered emails to writing long essays, letters to presidents. I have heard everything. Uh, Dr. Leah Hollis, please. I'm happy to tackle that. Um, I would certainly stay away from Facebook because they can track that stuff down and a number of organizations have uh, policies, even if it's your own personal account. My other question would be, uh, does this person have tenure or not tenure or is whoever is asking the question uh, up for promotion or some other accolade that they need to go through the chair? Um, if so, um, I would just make a note of it and keep going. If the person is uh, secure in their position with tenure or seniority or some other thing, um, I would make it uh, initially a conversation. By the way, Dr. Smith, uh, did you realize how we feel when you say X? It may not be your intention, but it makes us feel a little awkward. 
Mr. Doctor's chair Smith may come back and say, I didn't know. He, you've also given him an out. He didn't intend it. You can do those kinds of things if you have a strong relationship or at least a collegial relationship with um, the chair and also considering where this person is at in their uh, career if they need to go through this chair to get tenure or promotion or something like that. But still, you know, there is fear. I mean, fear of confronting a person. And that's why people go to Facebook or send an email or send a text message or go under another Facebook profile. How do we address such confrontation? I wouldn't call it a confrontation. I would just call it a conversation. So uh, if you were in a parking lot and somebody parked so close to you, that you couldn't get out, you'd crawl up the passenger side. If you had the opportunity, you'd speak to the other driver and say, hey, could you park a little further? Kind of the same thing. I mean, uh, we train people on how to deal with us. So if you say nothing, nothing will change. Somewhere in there, you've got to speak up a little bit. Maybe the guy's joking. Maybe he doesn't realize he's being difficult. But you, if it's that important, you should say something. But I certainly do not advise that alternate profile and bashing on Facebook. I do, I do not think that is a good idea at all. And actually, they can trace that kind of stuff down and you get in trouble anyway. <laughs> I agree. Not on Facebook. And I love that analogy. But what about those underrepresented faculty who choose to exit from the passenger side for many reasons? Um, Wanda Martin, please. Well, in addition to what Leah said, I agree with her that uh, not to get on social media. So I wouldn't recommend any of the options that were listed in the in the in the uh, question. But in addition to what Leah said, you have to really know and and mitigate your risk in terms of your status as a faculty member, being tenure, non tenure. But oftentimes there are other resources that can assist you get the message across. So maybe if you have a relationship with that person's supervisor, the dean, or your supervisor, bring it to their attention. But I definitely wouldn't let it go. There's also uh, confidential resources on campus to, to utilize as a sounding board to try to weigh all your options. But I think it does need to be addressed. And if when all those things are weighed and considered, if you have that relationship with the chair, to set up a time and not be in an antagonistic way, but just bring it to their attention that uh, that you were making note of the comments that were made the other day in that context, and that in an effort to continue a productive and positive relationship, you wanted to bring that to that person's attention. I have to ask, because underrepresented faculty have these thoughts. Uh, we think about the unions, their role as we navigate through higher education. We think about HR, which is a which is an easy target. Is it HR's fault? It's interesting. I'm writing a book right now about human resources and higher education and workplace bullying. And the, the, what HR is saying is leadership needs to charge us, give us the policies and give us the teeth to do it. Unless the uh, vice president over HR, the president or, or your cabinet level people are giving human resources the charge and the authority to deal with bullying, then the institution doesn't see it as a priority. And therefore, 
HR won't either. And in fact, some HR people report that they're being bullied or set up with microaggressions too, and they don't know where to go because the organization isn't set up to mitigate that stuff. True. We are increasingly facing uncivil bullying behaviors in academia. This can manifest itself in many ways. And let me give you a few examples in case you are clueless about these experiences, such as constant public humiliation by a chair or a dean, exclusion from experiences such as a birthday party, undermining work performances, taunting. These are real experiences. So how do we address these in a workplace? Certainly the leadership needs to intervene. Um, There's a study I did last year. Um, The title of it is Lessons from the Bobo Doll Experiment, and it's about social psychology. If the leader sits back while the bullying goes on, the organization recognizes that it's okay. If the leader intervenes or admonishes the aggressive behavior, the people witnessing learn that poor behavior is not valued. So it comes back to what's the leader willing to do to curtail bullying, including uh, charging HR to develop a policy and enforce that policy to prevent workplace bullying. But it has to come from leadership. And I would agree with that. Uh, Senior leadership needs to embrace it, promote it, and model it. And then once that policy is in place, to make sure there is consistency in terms of how it's being applied and enforced. And it shouldn't matter if someone's bringing in top research dollars or not. It should be applied consistently regarding the expectations of how people need to move forward and how they treat one another in the workplace. Dr. Jacqueline Pena, please. I, I hear a conversation, too, about creating safe spaces how do you create that culture where it's safe to have where, where it's safe to have these conversations but where you also feel safe to have these conversations whether it's with your colleagues or your supervisor in this case your chair and um, and I think leadership can work on creating that safe space and modeling that type of conversation as well I think it's the, just important to establish um, we were talking about safe spaces and networking not only within the organization, but externally where a trusted person, where the person can uh, disclose and share what they need to share if they don't feel they can do that internally within the organization because holding that all in takes its toll on a person's uh, psyche. And then addition, and, and, and as a result of that, it's going to uh, affect their mental health. So I think it's always important to have people um, outside of the organization that they can refer to and just um, with no pretense, just talk about what's going on with them and and, and seek that support. Thank you for that. Uh, Thank you so much. As I listen to you, I am thinking about the importance of these counter spaces on campus and also in the community, you know, and and how we need an episode to just to discuss how we as underrepresented faculty can create these places. It offers uh, opportunities for us to gather and share these navigational strategies that help validate the truth that we live while we're at the work plus. Thank you so much for that. Now we're off to our second question in Carolina at the cafe. Hello to whomever this may concern. My mentor advised me to start attending faculty picnics and other gatherings. 
I find it difficult to connect with them because I am the only Hmong instructor in my area. Do I bring my two self to the meeting? Should I hold back? And why am I feeling so hesitant? Any tips? Why should I worry about this? Will it look bad if I don't go? Help, please. If I can, I could partially claim this question as mine because I can so much relate to this faculty member here. You should always be authentic, right? <laughs> and he is asking if he can bring his true self to the picnic. Can I bring my true self to the picnic, my identity, my culture, my behavior? This is all about a sense of community, right? Why is he so hesitant? Wanda Martin, please. There could be a number, a number of reasons why the person is feeling hesitant to engage. Um, part of the onboarding experience, they haven't felt welcome or included. Uh, there hasn't been effort to, to recognize um, what's important to them beyond the work. I mean, before the work can get done, there are basic needs that need to be met. I think I would always recommend being your authentic self because it would be hard to be someone else. Taking an interview situation, you uh, you uh, present yourself in a manner that is not truly you, and it's going to be a hard, it's going to be a long year, a long experience to try to to live up to what you presented if that's not you. But always be your authentic self. As far as um, participating in events, I think the the point would be that they're trying to get to know you. You're trying to get to know them. There's a collegial aspect to it, but you don't have to accept every invitation. Just pick and select uh, what you're comfortable with, what your your schedule permits, and feel free to decline those that you're not able to do. And as far as um, indicating things, I mean, just small talk, you don't have to tell your whole life story to share what you're comfortable with. And as you get more comfortable with folks in smaller circles, maybe you would disclose more. But I don't think it's um, important to share your whole life story in the beginning. You're filling out people in terms of uh, pick some some comfortable topics that are non-risky, such as hobbies, what you like to do, extracurricular activities, something that well, there would be a common thing. But always be true to but yourself. But some people feel that it's a must uh, requirement. Uh, needed for them to attend these events, especially when you think about promotion and community, sense of community. And and I understand how this it becomes difficult to balance this, right? Because we have other right. responsibilities. We have family and family. We have community and community, right? Well, I think that, you know, just the question, the one part about what happens if I don't, you know, what happens if I don't participate, you know, how's that going to come across. I think it, it's a balance, you know, pick some things to be a part of. You don't have to go to everything, but at the same time, you want to have an experience where people see you as being collegial because you don't want them to make assumptions that you don't want to be part of the group or that kind of thing. But you can also venture out and get connected outside of that group as well. Venture out and see what else is available in the broader community um, as well to see what, what might um, suit your interests. There are meetup groups that you can join based on, on your interests and that kind of thing. So do your own exploring in the broader community where, where it would be probably more comfortable and safer for you to do so, where you don't feel like you're on the spot. Dr. Leo Hollis, please. I agree with Wanda about be authentic, but also be circumspect about 
what kind of group you're going into. So, for example, you know, my folks always told me don't talk politics and religion at work. So if you are uh, particularly devout in your faith, that is wonderful, yeah. but maybe not yeah. wear it on your sleeve at this event. Um, yeah, because the minute you bring up politics or religion, people are very married to those and very impassioned and at times can be a bit irrational regardless of what position you take. So uh, what topics are we talking about? Kids and pets and vacation and the weather, global uh, warming, those kinds of things. The other thing for this person, if they're just getting started and they're also feeling out how safe the organization is, there's nothing wrong with showing up 20 minutes late unless there is a sit down dinner, like dinner will be served at. <laughs> but if it's just like a picnic or an outing or some badminton, you can come 20, 30 minutes late and say that I'm going to stay an hour and I have another event to do. And so it helps you ease into the social setting of your faculty. And it also shows that you have commitments elsewhere as well. Um, I've been in some situations like there's three New Year's parties to hit that afternoon or there's two birthday parties that afternoon. And, and that's life. And you can certainly say I have something else. I, I'm here for about an hour. The other thing that can help somebody mm -hmm. feel better is whoever's organizing. Call them and ask, what would you like me to bring? Whether it's flowers or a bottle of wine or cookies or whatever, those are also nice ways mm -hmm. to be social and not blow all kinds of time and don't blow all your money on those things either. But <laughs> one thing I think about when I hear this question, I think about the the complexes such as the imposter complex. And I want to let, want this faculty to know, the one who wrote this question and others as well, that they belong in higher education. And we are challenged with these complexes every day. Am I the only one that sees this? Dr. Jacqueline Pinos. You mentioned imposter syndrome and, and feeling, do I deserve this? Do I belong? Am I good enough? Um, but even even um, whether it's culturally or, or, or whatever else, uh, for example, I was the only Dominican faculty member at a community college and the only Hispanic full-time 100% dedicated faculty member as well when I came on board. The other person was a researcher. And, um, and so I wanted to be authentic, but I also was socially awkward. I was shy and I felt different. So how do you have those conversations and how do you feel comfortable in the social gatherings. And um, over the years, I've learned, you know, you can come in with questions um, when you meet someone new, right? Like, hey, how long have you been working here? What do you teach? How are your classes? Do you have any great tips on how to engage my students when I'm talking about algebra? And uh, and that's, a you know, if you're shy, asking questions is a great way to know your colleagues, to get to know them and to get into those conversations. And then the other thing I've learned is um, you can focus on work first. Have questions that are focused on work and conversations on work. If you're a faculty, focus on your passion, teaching while you're all there. And then eventually you might get more comfortable talking about other things because we are looking at a lot of things. You might be from a different culture, ethnicity. Um, I tend to be a, a, many times the only woman at the table for a lot of the positions I've had. So that's another challenge. Um, age, um, you know. I was the youngest faculty member too. And so I've had, so the ageism piece is there as well. 
Um, and so you, you're balancing so many things. And, and so there, there are so many other discomfort levels, so, so many reasons for why you're not comfortable in the situation that I think uh, you can approach it focusing on your job first, especially if you're socially awkward or, you know, I came from the Bronx. I wasn't you know, really prepared for some of these conversations <laughs> when I went into fac- teaching and, and a faculty role. And so um, I, I like to start there. Uh, if you're shy or you're not sure how to engage, start with some questions and focus on what you have in common, which is teaching in this case. And you are good enough. You have the job. So I know it's hard to get over imposter syndrome, but you got the job. You earned it. Yes, thank you for that. We need to let uh, our underrepresented faculty know that they belong here in higher education. So I have a question, and I'm asking on behalf of my colleagues. Wink, wink. Okay, I'm at this party, and I see that some of my colleagues are inebriated. People are walking around with ties around their head, which is nothing wrong with that. We have to socialize and release. But I am that guy that everybody wants to buy a drink. Adine asks me if I would like a drink or not. Should I say yes or no? Dr. Leah Hollis, please. My general advice would be just because you accept one drink doesn't mean you drank it. I would not have more than one or two drinks at a function. And that's, you know, your alcohol tolerance. And the minute you start seeing your upper administration act the fool, get out. <laughs> so you saw them, you know, Xerox their face on the Xerox mm-hmm. machine, or all the crazy parties. And then they resent you the next day because you saw them at their worst. So go take a single drink, be social, don't get inebriated and get out of there before they start acting up. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, I agree with that. I, I probably wouldn't accept the drink. I would just say I'm fine with what I have. Thank you. Thank you for offering. Um, but like Leah said, stage door left when things start getting getting a little wild and it's time to go. <laughs> I can remember years ago I worked on the West Coast and I was just, my point is that there are regional differences that occur with people's um how they entertain and how they welcome you. And I can remember being from, I'm from the Midwest, born and raised here, but I remember that everyone at work was inviting me into their homes to come over. And for me, it was really different because where I'm from, it may take years before you get an invitation to someone's home. And it really means something. It's not just something to just say, oh, come on over. It really means something when they invite you into the home. And so I did go on one occasion to a house and I noticed that people were just going helping themselves to each to the refrigerator and just like just and I was just like wow this is because I know I know where I'm from you just don't do that you don't just come up in somebody's house first time and just help yourself to whatever and they were just doing that and I, it was just really surprising to me <laughs> exactly there is so much to think about right cultural factors regional factors As a Southerner living in the Midwest, I know exactly what you're talking about. So uh, tell me about your networking style. For me, I just jump in. I just jump in. That's how I do it. So tell me, what is your networking style? I'm usually more of a small group person versus a big group person. But I'll try to, when I'm new to a situation like that, I'll try to just um, 
sit back for a little bit and observe, but then I will venture out into a smaller cluster and introduce myself and, and, and make small talk and, and try to make my rounds so I get to, to, to uh, greet everyone. But, but I'm more comfortable one-on-one, um, one-to-two, one one-to-three as far as the interactions. This conversation shows uh, the fact that we can dig deep and, and look at so many tangents of it shows how important it is to have this conversation about uh, building culture and being social in the workplace and helping newer faculty integrate or, or other folks, but I know we're focusing on faculty because um, it's one of those things we don't talk about, but we also don't know how to do, especially if we're going to a different region of the United States or, or, um, or we're new to the field. One thing I think about is orientation, how college and faculty are acclimating new faculty to a campus. And let me tell uh, my podcast audience, please, please assess your college, your college campus, its, uh, its climate. And also it makes me think about mentorship. Believe me, mentorship is a positive thing. Uh I used to didn't think it was important to I received a mentor and it does wonders just to share my personal own lived experiences. And I believe Wanda, you had a story to share. I want to share something that happened to me that was very awkward as a new employee. Didn't happen in my current role. It was at another institution. I won't name the institution, but I was brand new and they were doing a welcome for all um, faculty and staff of color. And so this was like the big opening reception where you come and you meet. And I had been doing some phone work previously in the week with a, one of the professionals on the phone. And I'm very good with voice identification because I do a lot of phone work. So when I got to the event, I'm mingling around, I have my name tag on and everything. And I approached this person because I heard her voice and her voice was familiar and I knew I had talked to her earlier in the week. So I went up to her and I said, oh, hi, I'm I'm Wanda and I talked to you earlier and I want to introduce myself. And the person just looked with surprise, just jaw dropped and said, oh, you're Wanda. You're so articulate. You didn't sound. Yeah, you didn't sound. And then stopped herself because realized she was thinking out loud. And I finished the sentence. I finished the sentence for her and said, I didn't sound black. And uh, it was very awkward, but it was important for me to finish the sentence, to let her know that what she said was offensive without being confrontational. I, I finished the sentence and she got the point. And um, we were able to continue our conversation and then I moved on. So mm -hmm. it, it was, you know, you and, I, and for me, it was important for me to finish that sentence for her. And I did it in a way that was not confrontational, but to let her know that when you make assumptions, uh, there's there's something that's going to burst your your um, assumption of who you thought that person was. Thank you for that, Wanda. Thank you so much. You not only gave us a piece of your experiences, but you also shared one of the many ways we can address microaggression. This helps me and other podcast listeners to navigate these homogeneous campuses. I want to remind our podcast listeners 
Attending social events are ways, tools that colleges and universities uh, create a more inclusive campus. It is an opportunity to, for us to engage with others. But please remember you are not only selling yourself, they are selling the college as well. Attend these workplace events to not only meet people, but to understand the vibe of the campus. But pick which one that you like. They come in coffee breaks, picnics, barbecues, lunch, birthdays, celebrations, whichever one you like, that is the one you should attend. All right, now we're off to our third question, and we're with Carolina at the cafe. I am the only female faculty in the welding area. My goals are to work this job for two years, master it, and move on. I want it all a promotion, and a race. Those are my goals. I already find it intimidating to be the only female here. What are some things I should be thinking about? I mean, this is what I was taught. This is what we are taught, right? This is realistic, right? I mean, the rule is two to three years to master a job, and after that, we look for change, we look for promotion, don't get stale. But what should she be doing now? I would not worry or or focus so much on the gender difference. It is what it is. Uh, nobody's planning on changing that. It just is what it is. Um, compare your productivity to that of your other colleagues. How many students do you have in your class? Or did you create a partnership with the local manufacturer and place kids in internships? Or have you done additional service? So if you want a promotion and a raise, then compare yourself to others in your department or program and exceed them and you deserve the raise. Um, and I would say that to anybody, regardless of gender, um, raises come or should come with excellent performance. And also to have a conversation with a supervisor or even in a polite email, hey, I'm interested in being promoted to the next level. Can we sit down and talk about what I need to do to get there? In addition to that, just developing that professional development plan with the supervisor saying, here's my goals. And uh, here's how I can utilize your support to get there, but also repurpose yourself to go beyond your expectations of your position and make yourself so value added within that organization that it would be no question when it's time for you to make that next step. But it also takes a lot of preparation. So being uh, associated with the Professional Welders Association, uh, networking within that association with other professionals, also seeking sponsorship within the organization and outside the organization for that next role you're aspiring to be and do the research and learn what it takes to get there. So it's going to take a lot of hard work, um, but I'm sure the person is, is expected to do that. And that is their expectation to work hard because to get to the point where they have um, arrived has, has taken effort and, and preparation. So those would be my added comments related to that. Yes. Thank you. You know, um, Studies show that colleges and universities need better and creative ways to inform faculty evaluation. 
On some campuses, underrepresented faculty are not being evaluated properly at all or since they started teaching. And on the other hand, systems are biased. Some roles of faculty services are not valued like other roles when discussing tenure or uh, a promotion. That's an organizational problem. If you have faculty, you should have a VP or a provost or or the dean of the area or what have you, and there should be annual evaluations for this very reason. If somebody is uh, underperforming, for example, um, they don't come to class, uh, they don't get their papers on time, uh, they're not prepared. Those are performance issues that a manager should document and coach somebody out of. But to the good in that situation, if you have a faculty member who brings in guest lecturers and has videos and uses YouTube, that should be documented as well. So when you tell me that the faculty member is not being evaluated, um, that is a structural problem that needs to be corrected at the dean's level or the provost level or something like that. Everybody should have an evaluation um, because lo and behold, three or four years from now, when the dean wants to get rid of X, Y, and Z, and there's no evaluation, you're, the organization doesn't have a leg to stand on either. They're deciding this person shouldn't be here. So for everybody involved, there should be an evaluation. There should be measurable things in that evaluation. Um, how many students did you mentor? How many field trips did you go on? Did you bring in additional money? What, whatever, there should be a matrix. It should all be very clear, systematic, and no surprise. And I would say take initiative, too, because oftentimes the evaluation is once a year and that's the only opportunity that the supervisor sits down with the employee or they have them do the self-eval and then it's a carbon of what the employee said. That's not value added to anyone. So take the opportunity to meet during the year. Even if your supervisor hasn't called those meetings, you, you take the initiative and ask for that progress update and to make sure you're on track. Um, I mean, it shouldn't just be one way. It should be because that that's a signal to them that, you know, I am I am taking my professional development and my advancement opportunities seriously. And so I need you to be I need you to partner with me and I need you to take it seriously as well. That's great advice, Wanda, because a lot of times as faculty, new faculty, especially, we don't know how to approach that. So, yes, I can go online or go to orientation and get my rubric for my performance evaluation and the items I need to put in there for my self-assessment. But what if I only get one meeting a year? Can I email my chair and say, hey, could we meet uh, now that I've been on the job six months to see how I'm doing towards my uh, performance review? Uh, what can I work on? What can I improve? I would really love some time with you. And I think a lot of us are afraid to do that. So I think it's a great reminder that we can reach out for those meetings. Absolutely, because we are ultimately responsible and the captain of our professional development. So if things are not going well. We are the first person to be able to recognize that and and gain that support and those resources to make sure we're we're meeting our goals. Because you, if someone's setting it for you, if it's somebody else's goals, it's not going to be it's not going to be uh, meaningful. You're the one doing the work. You're the one that's that's uh, trying to advance. And so I think we should take responsibility. If it's not happening, make sure that we get everyone's attention that these are the things that I need and these are the resources and this is how I'm going to help you as an organization um, advance, but also you're helping me to um, to advance as well. So it's a two-way street, I believe it is. Okay. I 
need to take an initiative, I, and especially when thinking about my performance evaluation. I need to do research on my future. I need to join organizations uh, specifically about my field. I need to think about how I will be promoted. Uh, but one question many faculty, underrepresented faculty, ask me, should I look for allies? I think allies are important. So even if she's the only woman in the welding department, uh, is there a woman over in HVAC? Is there another woman over in uh, manufacturing or machining? Um, find out who those other colleagues are. Um, find out how senior colleagues are advancing in your system. Somebody's gone before you. Somebody can tell you how it's worked out. Um, if you have a chance to go to a regional training or a conference, uh, go to those things and make connections. So I have a number of colleagues at my own institution that I collaborate with, but I also have probably just as many or even more outside of my institution across the United States who I talk to about my research or check-in or what have you. So, um, and you can do that at your own speed. You can do that one-on-one. -on -one. I appreciated what Wanda said earlier about, you know, one-on-one -on -one connections and stuff. It's, uh, I'm better as well that way. And so, if I shoot somebody an email and say, hey, can I talk to you about reviewing my CV? So all of a sudden I have that conversation. And then I might call somebody else and say, hey, I saw you got such and such a grant. Congratulations. Could you share with me how you got that? Um, with the welders, it's the same thing. Are they part of, with community colleges, everybody's part of the community. So are there other community organizations or activities that uh, the woman welder can can uh, tap into. So she might have to do a little extra work, but by, but by no means is does she have to remain isolated. I absolutely love this conversation. And uh, forgive me for taking notes. I see you all looking at me, but I want to remember this, all this great information. So I and our podcast navigation list need this information. So we have reached the end of our scenario questions. But please, please, could you give our podcast audience one piece of advice? I would say um, it really goes back to what Jackie was saying that um, you are enough. Be yourself. Your interview is over and make the best uh, of the opportunity to learn as much as you can about not only your job, but beyond the organization, how you can um, make an impact and how you can further your professional development within the organization and outside. Utilizing uh, opportunities to network and find sponsors within the organization and outside the organization that will put you on the trajectory in the roles that you are aspiring to get into. Have those informational meetings with them. I don't know too many professionals that wouldn't be willing to sit down and talk to someone who's trying to aspire to be in that role or beyond. And that's what I mean about seeking out that sponsor, which is different from a mentor. A mentor has different uh, meets different needs, but you also need mentors within the organization and outside the organization to utilize as a sounding board. When things are when you don't feel things are comfortable or safe to talk about internally because they could have ramifications on your progression in your career, your irrespective endeavor, whether that's research or trying to gain funding. It's always it's always a good idea to have an objective 
opinion from someone who doesn't is not invested within that organization. So that's why utilizing mentors uh, outside is very important too. And I just say that um, never um, miss an opportunity to further your professional development, even though. You may not have funding to do something. Find other ways how you can continue your learning. I consider myself a lifelong learner. So repurpose yourself in every opportunity that you have to further your advancement, whether you're going to a conference or not. You can always do further research, uh, readings and that kind of thing and seek out people that are like minded in, t- in terms of trying to uh, meet the goals like yourself. So um and I just think if you're passionate about something, that's going to prevail and that's going to that in the end, that's going to come through. The other, the other advice I would give is try to cultivate a confidant inside your organization. It doesn't have to be your department or program, but somebody who you can bounce stuff off, stuff off and also a confidant outside your organization. Um, so I have maybe two or three people that I call up and say, you won't believe this or hey, I got happen or am I crazy or it's always good to have <laughs> another set of ears to listen to what's going on yeah. and say uh yeah you were crazy you should have done x y and z or I wasn't saying to have a five hour Zoom meeting I don't know what they were <laughs> yeah just what for happened? that reality check yeah uh-huh thank you all thank you all for joining us today it's been a pleasure having this discussion with you I've learned so much from you today. And one thing I learned is not to send that nasty email or to create that fiction Facebook profile. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not, Jimmy. Definitely not. Don't do it. Do the fun draft. Don't send it. Thank you. (laughs) This is Navigational Report 10023. Thank you for joining us. I learned so much during this conversation. First, I learned that it's best to handle your microaggressions straightforward, but keep in mind of your surroundings. And let me say, you might need help. And when they start asking you to college events, please bring your authentic self wherever you go, but keep your eyes open. And remember, you don't have to attend anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. And if you want a promotion, go get it. But remember to get ahead of the game by doing your research. Well, on our next episode, we will have Dr. Wilson Michaelo and Dr. Steve Gway when we talk about racial battle fatigue. I am Jimmy Cheffin, and see you on our next episode of The Navigation. Report.